Well, if you have a Bible, we'll turn to James chapter 1. The title of our message today is True Religion, Hearing, Receiving, and Doing. And so we'll begin in James 1, begin reading in verse 19. And it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. And he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now that's a mouthful right there. That's like eating alphabets for breakfast. It says, and he goes on to say, And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway or immediately he forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I don't know how many of you have read the book of James through once, twice, or whatever, but if you have, you can see that it's a very practical, down-to-earth book. And if you paid attention to the way he writes, you'll notice that he constantly uses illustrations from nature and from everyday life to bring home his points. So we've already seen, you know, he's talked about the waves of the sea. He's talked about the rich and the poor, flowers and grass. You know, how they'll wither in the sun, baiting fish hooks, conceiving and giving birth. I mean, he talks about things that we experience in everyday life and relates those to spiritual points that he wants to make. With those colorful illustrations, and it kind of has a straightforward and direct manner, doesn't he? I mean, he kind of gets to the point pretty quick. You understand what he's talking about. But his purpose in doing all this through his book is to lay out the many different evidences that Christian you can have that you have a true and a living faith. That's what he's in, and we've looked at several of them so far. So the first evidence that we looked at was that if you're a Christian, one of the evidences of a living faith that you'll have is you'll have a joyful, enduring faith in trials, and when you do that, that will demonstrate your genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 12. That's what we talked about, going through trials with joy, recognizing their purpose, why God's doing that, and it gives you a chance to demonstrate your love for Him. And the second evidence that we looked at last week is you'll also recognize what the true source of temptation is, and God never tempts us to do evil. Who is the true source? Where is that? It's within us, we talked about. So what we need to remember, though, is that God only has good intentions for us. So He is the source of all goodness that's in the universe. The way we can use that to overcome our temptation is he's the source of grace and mercy. He's put his spirit within us, and he's given us the perfect righteousness of his law. Those are the gifts that he's given us that will enable us to overcome temptation, amongst many other ones. The last thing we talked about in verse 18 is another thing that gives us the ability to overcome temptation is what? It's simply the new birth. 
People that don't have the new birth, they really have no power over sin. Sin dominates their life. That's just a fact. We said if we'll just remember who we are, that we are his first fruits, his chosen holy people. He's given us new hearts. He's given us new desires. And because of all that, we no longer, quote unquote, have to sin, do we? We really don't. <laughs> so we've been born into the family of God and we have a new identity. So today, we'll see that James tells us that if we have been born again by the word of truth, there should be a change in our lifestyle. It's what we call religion. You know, they used to use the expression, well, he got religion. <laughs> and by that, you know, most people would say, well, all of a sudden he's a different person and he's become a Christian. James talks about, though, that there's some people that seem to be religious. They consider themselves to be religious, but their religion and the way they live, it's futile. It's not going to get them anywhere. He said, but on the other hand, there's this true religion that God accepts, what he considers to be the truly religious people. And he says there's pure religion and there's undefiled religion before God the Father. And we'll talk about, he gives three examples of what that would be, people that are that way. So what is the key to having true religion? Because that's what we want to have, right? We don't want to think we're religious and be deceiving our hearts, as it says. But the key is simply, and I know we've heard this a million times at this church, but we're going to hear it again today because that's what's there in our text. But the key to having true religion is the Word of God. It's simply that. And not only having the Word of God, but our relation to it. Because you can have the Word of God, and we'll see, and it may be getting you nowhere. So it's not just a matter of hearing it, believing it, knowing it's true. You can't stop there, can we? And we've been accused of that, where, hey, we just come here, we just want to hear the Word, and that's the end of it. We're glad we heard a good message. That can't be the ending point, can it? It's important, but it can't be the ending point. So in verse 18, we look back here in verse 18, James, he tells us, what is the instrument or the means of the new birth? And it is what? It's the Word of God. Look what he says. He says, Of his own will begat he us with, how did he begat us? With the Word of truth. God chose, it was by his will, he chose to give us the new birth, but he didn't do it without any help, if I can say it that way. He did it by the Word of truth. And it's called what in the Bible? How else is that word explained as far as giving us new birth? It's called seed, isn't it? So humans, I'm not getting into biology here, but in case you all don't know, we come into existence not because parents desire to have children. There has to be seed involved. It's the same with God. There's desire in their seed. And the seed we have, though, it's corruptible. I mean, we all are born, come into life, but then we grow old and die and perish. But the birth our heavenly Father gives us the Word says it comes through incorruptible seed. His Word, 1 Peter 1.23 says that we are being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. So the eternal, living, abiding Word does what? It creates eternal living, abiding life in us, doesn't it? In everybody that believes, that's what it does. The point is there's life-giving power in the Word of God. It's the seed of life. When it is sown in a heart that is prepared by the Holy Spirit, there is a tremendous change that takes place. And he has to be the one that opens our heart, though, to receive it, doesn't he? Isn't that what it said he did for Lydia? God opened her heart as she heard Paul preached. 
And that's when she came to new life. That's what happens to all of us. We don't open our own hearts. We're dependent on the Spirit of God to do that. But when He does that, the Word is seed that gives birth to a new creation. And I'm saying, everybody that I'm looking at right now that is truly born again, that is what happened to you. It's the Word. You either read the Word, you heard the Word preached, you heard somebody explain the Word, someone shared the Word with you, and as that happened, God is open in your heart. His Spirit is breathing on that Word as it happens. It's a seed that gives new life. A birth takes place, and it's from the Word. So the question we're going to deal with today, though, is how does a newly born babe in Christ, how do they then grow? The answer that the Bible gives us is the same. So the same means, the same instrument that God used to give us new life or the new birth, it's the same means that God uses for spiritual growth. It's the living Word of God. And we're back to Peter on that. 1 Peter 2.2 says, as newborn babes. As newborn babes, it says, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. And by that he means if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, if you've experienced that new birth, then he says there should be this desire. That word desire means you've got this intense longing. It's something that comes with the new birth. As you think about it, I mean, there are so many natural and spiritual parallels in this world, the way God's designed it. So when a baby is born, you don't have to put a desire in that baby, do you, for milk? I mean, it's screaming and crying till it gets it, isn't it? That is what Peter's saying should happen or does happen when a person experiences a spiritual new birth. There should be this desire, this longing that I want that word. And that's how it happens. So we live and grow as Christians by the Word of God. Here in what we just read, James tells us in verses 19 and 23, we grow by hearing the Word of God. Verse 21 says we're to receive the Word of God. Verse 25, we have to gaze at the Word of God. And verses 22 and 25 says we have to do all of those things, but even more importantly than all of that, we have to be doers of the Word of God. Today, there are four truths about the word that I want to look at that James lays out. And the first is in verse 19, first point we're going to make is that we should hear it eagerly. The second point is we should receive it meekly or humbly. That's verse 21. Our third point is going to be we should obey it continually, verses 22 to 25. And the last point we're going to look at is we should demonstrate it practically. And that's the last two verses verses 26 and 27. First of all, we're going to look at we should hear the word eagerly. And that's where we have verses 19 to 20. It says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man, let every one of you be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. And there are some people that do interpret it this way. Some people look at James like it's the book of Proverbs where it's just all these random little bits of this is how you should live. And they look at verses 19 and 20 as being kind of unrelated to anything else. And they look at it like this is just good advice on human relationships when you're having a conversation with somebody, when you're talking to other people. You know, when you meet somebody, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and don't get in a fight with them. I mean, that sounds like Dale Carnegie. 
how to win friends and influence people because that's what he'll tell you on there. He says, when you meet somebody and you want to win a friend and influence people, become genuinely interested in that person. Be a good listener. Encourage that person to talk about themselves. Those are the points in his book. And it kind of seems like that's what James is saying here. Or maybe Dale Carnegie read James and got his ideas for that. I don't know which way that went. Anytime you want to read something and try to understand it, what's the number one principle? Context, context, context. But that's just a good truth. So I think the context demands a different interpretation here. I think it's true that that's a good way to relate to people. So I'm not saying that. But I think primarily what James is talking here is about it's our relation to the word. When you've been born again, as we said, one of the first evidences that that has happened to you is you are going to be eager to hear the word preached or read. Because that new birth is going to give you a hunger for his word in your heart. It was never there before. It never was for me. I could have cared less about hearing preaching. It wouldn't have crossed the street to hear somebody preach before. But like we said, it says that you should desire that sincere milk of the word, that strong desire so you can grow. James is saying here in verse 19, if you want to grow as Christians, then we need to be. What's the first thing he says? For my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. You think, well, why doesn't he say read? Isn't that what we would say? You got to be swift. Because listen, the printing press wasn't invented in the day of James. They didn't have printing presses. Nobody had books in their houses like we do. Nobody had Bibles, four or five Bibles in their room, their office, by their bed. So the only way these people would get the word was what? It'd be traveling missionaries. It'd be the teacher that was set in place. Or they'd go to the synagogue and they would have to listen to the word being spoken. And James is saying we need to be swift to hear. That's the way they were. That's the first duty for those Christians. We have to be eager to hear. And I mean, we were years back, just about everybody. Meetings like this, you couldn't get there early enough. You were afraid you wouldn't get a seat. And I know the way it was for me. That was, man, when I was born again, we had a guy that would come down and teach us. And because he didn't come every week, and sometimes he'd go like two hours preaching. For me, he could have gone three. I'd never heard things like with what he was. I grew up as a Catholic. I, I'm like, I never heard the Bible taught like this. I was eager to hear. And I'm saying, a newborn Christian, I understand after you've heard something a few times, it's not quite the same as the first time you've heard it. But that should be the way if we want to grow, it should never leave us. I'm saying, I'm still excited about hearing good preaching myself. I really am. I'm eager to hear that. The opposite of being eager or swift to hear is being swift to speak. So James is saying, that's what we have here. The second thing he says, so my beloved, let every man be swift to hear. The opposite of being swift to hear is being swift to speak. He says, don't be that way. Swift to hear, but slow to speak. And what he's saying is, don't be quick when you hear the word, either inwardly or outwardly, because you got to figure in those meetings back then, they had interaction going on. They were talking and, hey, I wonder about That's why you ask, women, you, you got to be quiet. You can't keep interrupting the guy trying to teach. But they would interact more. But he's saying, look, just because you're hearing something and they're hearing teaching back then that it was kind of new to them, a lot different than what they were used to hearing. And he's saying, don't be so quick to raise an objection in your heart or out loud. Don't be so quick to express your opinion. People hear teaching and it's not exactly like what they want to hear. They've heard before. I'm not saying just open yourself up to all kinds of new revelation, but 
Don't be so quick to say, man, that's just his opinion because I read this book over here, or heard this other guy, and it contradicts whatever. He said, you need to carefully listen to what's being said. Take time to evaluate the word that's being preached because maybe you haven't considered everything carefully or even maybe I've read this or heard this so many times, but I've never quite understood it like this. So he's saying, be quick to listen, slow to speak and quick to listen, quick to take in what it says, because the tendency of our heart is to be just the opposite of what James says. The tendency of the human heart is to be slow to hear and quick to speak, whether it's in conversation or whether it's in hearing the word. One man said this, a continual talker cannot hear what anyone else says and by the same token will not hear when God speaks to him. So we've heard it so many times, it doesn't matter who's standing in the pulpit. It really doesn't. You've got to be listening to what God is saying through them, maybe. <laughs> you don't like the person, you don't like whatever. You've got to be listening to what the Lord's saying. And for me, I mean, I've had people that I personally didn't care for some things they did or their personality. But when you recognize that God's Spirit's speaking through a man, forget all that. Listen to what God's saying. He's feeding you. I mean, you know, those guys in Matthew 7, have we not prophesied in thy name? Well, he didn't say the prophecy wasn't valid. Those guys personally weren't, and they were going to be in trouble. But the word they were saying was something maybe God had anointed in spite of them. So that's where we need to be slow to speak and quick to hear. And the other thing is the last part. So after you've been a Christian for a while or heard teaching for a while, you can become unteachable, can't you? You can be. That's what he's saying. You, you know, you can learn something, I think, through the most humble saying. So I go into prison, and I'm saying, I've had those prisoners come up. you got to be quick to hear and slow to speak because you tend to think, what's this guy know? You know, you're doing 30 years for murder. You know, but if he's repented, I've had this happen. God can show somebody something, and I mean, I've had them give some really good insights. I've also, though, had them give some really crazy things, too. So I'm not saying, yeah. Oh, you got something to say? Well, I'm going to bite that hook line. No, no, but you need to be listening because God can be speaking through people like that. Calvin said this, and I thought this was good about being swift to hear and slow to speak. He said, when God so freely and kindly presents himself to you in his word, you also ought to render yourselves teachable, lest your slowness should cause him to desist from speaking. But inasmuch as we do not calmly hear God speaking to us. You know, a lot of times it takes some time, it does for me, to get yourself quiet when you're reading the Word and just get calmed down, get rid of all the thoughts, all your anxieties, whatever, and just calm down and listen. And that's what he's saying. He goes, and a lot of times we seem to ourselves to be very wise, but he says, but by our haste, we interrupt God when he's addressing us. And he says, James, the apostle here, requires us to be silent, to be slow to speak. And doubtless, no one can be a true disciple of God except he hears him in silence. And that's what we need to learn to do, isn't it? Take what we hear, what we read more seriously. And then the last thing when he talks about there to be slow to wrath, have you ever shared the word with somebody that disagrees with you? or heard the word that you disagree with and something rises up in you. It works both ways. So it's a great temptation for what to happen next. 
to get in an argument or a debate. And James says, wait a minute, you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and also you need to be slow to wrath, slow to get in a debate. Because you're sharing the word or you're listening to the word. Either way, your goal is to what? Help somebody out in righteousness. Help them along in their Christian walk. And all of a sudden, you're talking to a customer, you're witnessing to somebody. Your goal is not to get them upset. Not only anybody starts off that way, but then what happens is they disagree with you. I don't agree with that, or what do you know? And they start contradicting everything you're saying. The temptation then is whether you're on the receiving or the giving end is to get upset, isn't it? And get in an argument. And then, you know, that's where James is saying, look what he says in verse 20. He says, For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. So the very thing you're out to try to produce in somebody, once all that starts going and the sparks are flying, nothing's produced. No righteousness is produced. You're just left with a bad feeling. And that's what he's talking about there. We need to have a right attitude in receiving the Word of God, don't we? Not an argumentative and all that. <laughs> that's his opinion. That's what he gets into here. And the second point is how should we receive the Word? And he says in verse 21, we should receive it meekly or humbly. He says, wherefore, lay aside apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, the abundance of evil is what it means, and receive with meekness the implanted and grafted word which is able to save your soul. So that wherefore that James has there at the beginning of verse 21 is referring back to verse 20. A man or woman, whoever you are, that is getting in the flesh and tending to argue with people about the word, you probably have got other issues in your life. You've probably got sin in your life that's causing you to operate in anger. And James is saying, first of all, you've got to deal with that. So for us to receive the word properly, we've got to remove all the sin out of our life. That's what he's saying there. So he uses the metaphor of taking off a soiled garment, filthiness. That's what that word filthiness means. It means shabby clothing, clothing that's filthy, dirty. And he says, you've got to take all of that off. It's a common metaphor used in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4, this idea of taking off the old man. It's like taking off a suit of clothes and putting on the new man. He uses it also in Colossians 3.8. He says, but now you also put off. That's the same word that's being used here. Put off all these. Here's what it says in Colossians. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's the picture he's getting there. And then that superfluity of naughtiness, it really means the overflowing, the abundance of evil. And I'm saying whether we want to admit it or not, our hearts a lot of times are overflowing with evil, aren't they? It's a constant work, in a sense, to garden our hearts and to keep the weeds out. And that's what he is saying here, that we have got to pluck up the roots of sin Pluck up those weeds of sin by the roots because if they are left to themselves, your life, it becomes filthy. It becomes filled with an overabundance of evil. It will just take over. And when that happens, you know what? Generally, you'll quit reading your Bible. But if you're still coming to church, when your heart is that way, guess what doesn't take any effect on you? Really, people start losing interest. When you start getting backslidden and giving into sin, the interest in hearing preaching in the Word, it's gone. It just goes, doesn't it? I mean, all of us have been there to one degree or another. And that's what James is saying here. You've got to have your heart right to receive the word. So it kind of reminds me of Jeremiah 4.3. That's what I thought about when I read this. 
Break up, he says, your fallow ground and do not sow the word amongst thorns. And I liked how the NET translation translated that verse. It says, like a farmer breaking up hard, unplowed ground, he says, you must break up your rebellious will and make a new beginning. Just as farmers must clear away thorns lest the seed is wasted, you must get rid of the sin that is ruining your lives. And that's what we have to do constantly, you know, to keep the word, to have a, a ground that the word can be implanted in and take root. Once the soil of our hearts has been properly prepared, then the word can be, as James uses the word in King James, engrafted, or I think a better way of saying it would be to be implanted. Good soil is what he's talking about. Isn't that what Jesus talked about in this parable of the sower and the seeds? The weeds have to be removed, the attitude has to be right, and the attitude needs to be one then of meekness or humility. And it's just the opposite of what he'd been talking about, wrath, isn't it? Isn't humility the opposite of wrath? It's the attitude receiving or the implanted word with humility. It's this, I'm going to bow, I'm willingly bowing my neck to the yoke of Christ, to whatever he says to me in a word. It's in his word. In other words, it's having a teachable spirit. It's coming before the Lord, whether you hear it preached, whether you read it, however you're getting the word and saying, I bow my will, I bow my emotions, I bow my life to what you say in your word. And listen, God is the only person I would do that with. So if somebody came to me and said, I want you to do something for me, if, unless you haven't been around the world long, you shouldn't just say, sure, should you? What should you say? Well, that depends. That depends on what you want. That's what I'll say. Well, what is it you want? But when we come to the word, he's saying we should receive with meekness. We shouldn't come with that attitude to God's word, should we? Well, it depends. No, with God, it's like we should be like who? Little Samuel. What did little Samuel say when God got his ear? He said, speak, Lord, for thy servant hears. And implied in that is I'll do whatever you say. And that's the way Samuel was. That's the way Samuel was a godly man. It's the way he lived. And when it says there in verse 21 that we're to receive with meekness, that word receive it has the idea of hospitality behind it. Receiving someone into your home. You're welcome here. That's what that word means. You're welcome here. And that needs to be our attitude towards God's word. It's this humble attitude towards hearing and hearing the message preached. So that is what was said of the Bereans. That was their attitude. And it's the same word as used. I want to show you that if you turn over to Acts 17. And actually, if you'll read all of Acts 17, or at least through 15, you'll see what James is talking about. The Jews in Thessalonica, they didn't receive the word meekly or humbly. They received the word, like James is saying here, in wrath, because they rose up and drove Paul out of town. And that's why we have here, why he says what he says in verse 11 of Acts 17. Well, look in verse 10, and, and the brethren immediately sent Paul away. They had to by night unto Berea, get him out of Thessalonica, who coming thither went into the synagogue. They go into the synagogues of the Jews, and look what it says. Well, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And why was that? In that they received, or it says they welcomed 
the word how with all readiness of mind. In other words, they weren't coming to get mad and get upset because Paul's preaching things that they have never heard before seem contrary to what they've been taught. They said, no, we're receiving, we're listening to this, we're welcoming this word with goodwill. And we're not prejudiced against you, Paul, just because you're saying something we maybe haven't heard before. And that's what it says. And they didn't just accept what he said at face value, because what else does it go on to say? They search the scriptures how often? Daily. So they're receiving it. They're not coming there to argue with it, to have an attitude, but they're searching the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And the result is in verse 12. Therefore, because of that, when you have an attitude that way, receiving the word, receiving it with goodwill and unprejudiced mind and heart, searching the scriptures, Many of them, it says in verse 12, believed. But look, to prove my point, look down at verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also, and they did what? Stirred up wrath. They're troublemakers. They weren't willing to receive the word in the right way. Amen? And that's what's going on there. Welcome the word. And so what makes the soil of our hearts good? It's got to be cleared away of all filthiness and the abundance of evil. That's what we've seen so far. You know, you ever put miracle Grow in your ground when you're growing something? You just add that ingredient, bam, it takes off. Well, what's the one ingredient that you clear all the weeds away, you get rid of all the sin in your soil, and there's just one thing of miracle Grow he says to put in there, and that is the spirit of humility. You put that in there, when that happens, and that ground is cleared, and you've got good soil, and you've got humility at work, then there is power, it's saying, in the implanted word. And you look back in James, when it says there in verse 21, he says, when you receive with meekness the implanted word, he said, it is able to save your souls. And that word for able is the word we talk about dunamis, power. It has power or ability when it's received that way to save. Sozo, it's the word we get, heal, deliver, whatever it is your soul needs. When that word hits that good soil that way, man, power is there. There's power in the word. There really is. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power. It's the same word as able to save your souls. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. It's all a matter of our heart. How much power is in our lives through the word of God, isn't it? Isn't that what James is telling us here? And so he goes on to say, the third point is once the word is implanted in us, in our good soil, and we've received it in meekness, we need to do what? And that's verses 22 to 25. We need to obey it continually. So he says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholds himself, goes his way. And immediately just forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues, continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man, it says, shall be blessed in his deed. So 
James has given us, this is not an option for Christians. It's another one of his commands in verse 22. It's in the present tense. It's an ongoing duty. So he's telling us through there, continue to be doers of the word. Or he's telling them, become more and more doers of the word. He's not saying they never did the word. I mean, that's like in here. I wouldn't say there's people in here generally... It's not like they don't do anything in the Word, but he's saying just make that more a characteristic of your life, that you're known as a doer. I'm somebody that comes and hears, and then I do what I've heard. And I'm telling you, there's people that I, you see that response. You preach the Word, you think, man, I don't know if anybody received that or not, but then you see it demonstrated in their lives where people, like, they took to heart what you said. It's encouraging for me as a preacher. It's like, man, somebody's actually putting that into practice the best they can. But that should be how we should be characterized as a church, as Christians, isn't it? So that's what he's saying, become more and more doers of the word. We need to listen, don't we? That's what he says in verse 9. He says, we need to listen. You need to be swift to hear. And some people start taking this attitude. I don't need to hear the word. I'm just going to be out busy all the time. I'm saying you could be busy and hearing the word. I think when you start getting an attitude like that, it's a problem. We always need to be eager to hear the word. And James isn't saying that. He isn't saying just get out there and be a doer, forget about hearing. That's not his point here. He says what? Just don't only be a hearer. That's the problem, isn't it? Verse 22 is be doers of the word and not hearers. He doesn't put a period after hearers, does he? He says hearers only or merely or just merely hearers. Just somebody that that's all you do. So the word for hearer, it's a Greek word, and it was commonly used in Greek literature for people that would go and hear a lecturer, but they never were his disciples. They just showed up because they liked to hear the guy talk. They thought he was a good orator. And so they would never do what he said. They would never follow his instructions. They were just hearers. And James says we shouldn't be like that because this is the great deception that he's talking about here. Because human nature is we will pride ourselves on hearing the word and agreeing with it. And then we equate that with obeying it. Oh, man, that was a good word. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Or there's really a good anointing on that word. I'm saying you can come. You can recognize that the word has an anointing. You show up. You hear it faithfully and all that. And if you put a period after that, he's saying you are deceiving yourself. That's not the purpose. So Paul told the Jews in Romans 2.13, he says, It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified in his sight. Because that's the way they became. They had the law and they knew it. And they knew that the way they lived was more righteous than the Gentiles. But he's saying, well, you tell a man he shouldn't steal. And you know that. And you know it's right, but he says, you steal yourselves. You're not a doer of the word. He gets on them about that. So we like to pat ourselves on the back. I mean, I just, I'll talk about it for myself. You know, hey, I got up at 6 a.m. today. I read my Bible for an hour, and I can tell you everything I read. I can quote all those verses back to you. I fully concentrated on the word. And James would say, you got a good start to your morning, my man. That was a really good start. But let me ask you. Did you commit your life and your heart to obeying what you read? Did you allow that word that you read to make changes in your attitude, in your outlook, and how you're going to go through your day? 
That's what he said. Did you redirect your life by what you read? Are you going to live according to the word you read or heard preached? Because he goes on to give an illustration that hearing the word and not doing it, it's like a man who it says beholds or looks at his face in a mirror. And the implication is, now they didn't have mirrors back then like we do where it's glass and you're seeing an exact duplication, but you're seeing close enough. It's, it was polished metal. And he's saying, you're like somebody that looks in a mirror and the implication is you look in there and you see something that needs fixing. You look in there and you see your hair's a mess you cut yourself shaving, or maybe you need a facelift. His point is, you're looking there, something needs to change. But he says, instead of taking care of business, what does he say he does? It says, he goes his way, and immediately, it says, he forgets what he saw. Now listen, for some of us, when we look in a mirror, we need to immediately forget what we saw. <laughs> That's what I think about myself. But he's saying here, no, when you look in the mirror and you see you got a problem there, he says, while you're looking in the mirror, you need to make that change. So when he says he forgets, he's not saying that the guy has a bad memory, but his point is he didn't put into practice what he saw when he saw a change needed to be take place because that mirror pointed it out to him, showed him what he needed to do. That's what God's word does. For us, we read the word, hear the word preach. And God convicts us. It happens all the time. It happens to me while I'm preaching. And he's saying, you need to, so to speak, spiritually comb your hair. You need to get the part on the right side after getting up in the morning. And so we truly see it. We agree with it. We think to ourselves, I need to repent. I need to make that change. But how many times we don't even get out of the door, out into the parking lot, and we have forgotten all about it. So it's not that we have a bad memory, is it? That's not it. It's just we haven't determined to put the word into practice. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's talking about with this first man. Then in verse 25, though, he goes on to a second man. He kind of shifts his metaphor from looking in a mirror to a man that is hearing the word. So he describes a man. What does it say about him? He looks into the perfect law of liberty. It's the picture of a person bending over and intently, not looking in a mirror, but they're intently looking with eagerness to examine the Word, carefully examining it to see what's revealed. It's a penetrating look. So it's not just like a glance. You know how sometimes you'll walk by a mirror and just kind of, I don't look, I don't look all right. But you're not really checking yourself out good. He's saying that's not it. This is somebody that is really looking in there with the intention of examining what it says in light of their life, what they need to do to change, to get brought in to conformity to it. That's what he's talking about. Because he's saying the person looks in the perfect law of liberty and it says they continue therein. That's the difference between the first man and the second man. The second person doesn't forget. They don't forget. They think about what they've heard, they see the change they need to make, and then they make it a part of their life. They continue therein. And literally, what that says is, you continue in its company. That therein, it's a word that is used for when you live with somebody. And that's what he says the right person does. They look in that word, they see the change, and they live with it. 
They invite it in, they welcome it in, and they live with it to let that change take place. And what we need to see is the words James is using here that we need to see that is where true spiritual freedom is found. True spiritual freedom is found in doing the word. And that's why James calls it what? The law of what? Liberty. He doesn't call it the law of bondage. He's saying being a doer of the word is the path to true freedom and true happiness. Making changes when we look in the word and because a lot of times those changes are painful. You got to see that ultimately we're back to count it all joy when you fall into trials. When you see something in the word that's showing a change, we don't want to give things up, do we? And it's painful. But the point is it leads to joy. It's the law of liberty. And I've talked about this a time back. Let's get my hair cut at my sister's. I just gotten saved. She was a Christian. And she had this poster. And on top picture of the poster is this person being cranked through this, I don't know, clothes ringer. And they got this sour look on their face. And below that it said this, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But first it'll make you miserable. I mean, that's true a lot of times, right? When you give something up and you're trying to change a habit or a pattern in your life, I mean, it's like hard to do. It's not fun. But it leads to true freedom is what he's saying. So we think that freedom in our mind, especially living here in America, freedom is being able to do whatever we want, to be able to sin and not feel guilty. And Jesus said it's just the opposite of that. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you in John 8, whosoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Sinners are in bondage. It's a bondage that leads to death. So just act that gambler that's addicted to gambling. What it does, I was just talking to a brother, it just destroys families, doesn't it? Or the person that's a heroin user, the sex addict, all those things destroy families. But also I would say, what about the critic? How do you think that person feels on the inside? Do you think they feel truly free or the gossip or the person that just can't deal with their anger, an angry, resentful person? So James here, though, what we need to see, we talked about it some last week, is we need to see the law not as a law of bondage, but as a law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. And that's like a song that we used to sing here, Psalm 19, if you would turn back to that. I always like this song. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. And what should they do? Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then look what it says in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. And rather than being a bitter pill to swallow, it says they are sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, verse 11, by them is thy servant warned. And look, it sounds just like James. And in keeping of them, what does it say? There is great reward. And what we need to see, when we can truly see the law in its perfection and beauty, we will love it. But we're getting back to where verse 18 has to have taken place in your life, or you'll never be there. If you haven't been born again, you will not have any natural inclination, any desire 
to obey God and you won't love his word, it'll be bondage to you. You'll hate it. It'll be unwilling submission is the way it will be. But David was a man after God's own heart and he loved God's law. He wrote in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. So he was a man that continued in the word all day. And he, by what he said, he wasn't a forgetful hearer, was he? He realized the truth of what we read there in verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, God's law. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. And moreover, by them as thy servant warned, and in keeping of them is great reward. So if you go back to James chapter 1, verse 25, he's telling us there, when we look into that perfect law of liberty and continue therein, and you'll only do that if you see the beauty and perfection of his law, you'll obey, like I said, not because you have to or unwillingly, but because you want to. And that is true freedom. And James says at the end there in verse 25, he says, this man, the man that does that shall be what? He shall be blessed in his deed. And that's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But it says his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall then be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And it says, whatsoever he does shall prosper. That's the same thing we have here in James 1.25. At the end of that verse, this man that's blessed, that meditates on the word, that doesn't meditate and walk in the counsel of the ungodly or sit in the seat of scornful, those that are against the word, which is the world, right? He says, the man that does that will be blessed in his deed. That's Psalm 1. So if we're doers of the word, it's going to be seen in our daily lives. And that brings me to my last point here, that when we have that all going in effect in our lives, we will demonstrate the word practically. And that's verses 26 and 27. If any man among you then seems to be religious, and doesn't bridle his tongue is to see as a deceived heart. This man's religion is in vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So James gives us three practical applications of what he calls religion. And by religion, he means just how you practice your everyday Christian life. So he says when somebody seems to be religious, what he's saying is, well, their lifestyle seems to point that way. You know, they never miss a meeting. They always have their hands up at the right time. They know how to have religious talk. And he's saying they think they're religious. They think they have religion. And he's saying they don't, though. They're deceiving their own hearts. And why is that? He gives three characteristics of what true religion would be. So the first one, he says... People like that that seem to be religious, but yet they don't bridle their tongue, saying they are deceiving themselves. So he's saying the tongue has got to be bridled. He's comparing our tongue to a wild horse that needs to be kept in constant check. One time I went with Carl Goller. Some of you guys know Carl. Oh, wild Carl is going to take me riding horses. He sticks me on this horse. And I mean, I hadn't ridden horses very long. 
We get out, we're out in this open field and we're cantering, I guess is the right term. And I'm thinking, man, this is fun. You know, I felt like Jesse James or whatever. And then, oh, next thing you know, all of a sudden that horse did something. I'm literally flying in the air. I did a flip and landed on my back. And I'm just laying there. I had the wind knocked out. I couldn't breathe. And Goller thought I was going to die. And the reason is, I didn't, I guess this would be right, Daryl, I didn't bridle the horse. Is that, would that be the right terminology? He said, you got to, he said, he acts like I'm an idiot, like I've been riding 30 years like him. He says, you got to keep his head up. You let him get his head down, he'll throw you like that. I'm like, thanks for telling me now. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to call an ambulance and all that. I'm like, no, you didn't have to do that. But that's the point. That's what James is saying here. He's saying if we don't bridle our tongue, if we just let them run unrestrained like I did that horse, he's saying your tongue is going to throw you for a loop and it is going to knock the spiritual wind out of you, so to speak. Isn't that what he's saying? <laughs> so He's saying you can't be a professed Christian and not restrain your tongue because he says people that do that are deceiving themselves. You're telling yourself there's something has happened to you on the inside that hasn't happened. That's his point. It's just simply not true. So he's saying the, th the tongue, he's telling us, is the thermometer of our heart. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, out of the abundance of the heart, that's the thermometer, the mouth will speak. And if your heart hadn't been changed, and it's going to come out not well, is it? But it's been changed, he's saying, then you'll have good speech. And that's James's point here. He goes on in verse 27 to say that we have the heart and nature of our Father. There's going to be two things that are going to characterize our lives because they characterize our Father and God. And one is we're going to have a compassion for the poor and needy, orphans and widows. Because they were the most vulnerable, needy members of the society back in that day. And I would say they still are. They can easily be taken advantage of. And so when he says pure religion and undefiled is to visit the orphans and widows, he doesn't mean to just come and pay a social call. That's not what he means by visit. For a Jew, it meant you're going there, you're visiting, you're making a call, but you're coming there to supply their needs, and you're going to care for them in some way. Now, it may just be that they just need somebody to visit them because they're lonely, so I'm not saying you couldn't do that. There's many verses, though, not so many in the New Testament. This is the only one where they're combined, but there's a many verses in the Old Testament where orphans and widows and caring about them are combined. Deuteronomy 10.18 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, and he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And on Isaiah 117, when he's telling them, this is what you all aren't doing, this is what you need to start doing to get right with me, what he tells them is, one thing is he says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. So caring for orphans and widows, he's saying having compassion on the poor is one way to show and be a doer of the word to show that your heart's right with God. That's what he's saying here. Second characteristic, he says, of a pure and undefiled religion before God is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, I'm not spending a lot of time on these things. I'm just about done because all three of these things, the tongue, caring for the poor and keeping yourself unspotted for the world, all he's doing is setting up what he's going to get into and expand on in the rest of the letter. He deals with all three of these things again. But what is the world? It's just that human outlook on life. It's going to use 
worldly wisdom, human wisdom to achieve its goals. And it's going to have no regard for God, his law, his values. It's basically anything, the world is anything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. There is a constant bombardment through television, the media, everywhere to our eyes, our ears, and our minds that's trying to get us to stray from our loyalty to him, isn't it? That's the way it is. And we're feeling tremendous pressure at all times. And he's saying, true religion is this, you'll keep yourself unstained from the world. You're not going to let the stain of the world be on you. And the question is then, we have to ask ourselves, and what he's saying here is, are we his or not? Are we the Lord's or not? So to sum up what we've said today, we should be swift and eager to hear God's word, whether it's preached or whether we read it. And then we have to ask, are we listening with willing, humble hearts to receive it? Do we welcome do we welcome the word into our hearts and minds? We're saying, Lord, your word is a welcome and permanent guest in my heart. That's the attitude we have to have. And then are we committed to continually obeying that word that we've received? I receive that word. I meekly receive it. And I am going to make the changes, Lord, that you require. I'm going to be a doer of the word. That's going to be what characterizes me. That's going to be my character. My character is not going to be, well, he's just a hearer. No, my character is going to be, I'm not just a hearer, I'm a doer. That person's a doer. That's what you want to be characterized by in God's eyes. Why? You know, it's one thing to have somebody else deceive you. You don't want to deceive yourself. Why deceive yourself? That's what happens if you just hear and you don't do it. And we said a person, though, that will live like that, What does James say? A person like that will be blessed in all he does. Quick to hear. Humbly receive it. Make the changes. Be a doer. And the Bible says that person is going to be blessed in all he he does. A truly blessed man or woman. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, Father, I just ask you, Lord, you will impress on all of us, Lord, to be doers of the word and emblazon that thought on our hearts and on our minds, Lord, that we do not want to be deceived people. We don't want to be people that just come and hear and hear and hear and yet don't do. So I ask you, Lord, that you'll continue to make us hearers, but you'll continue to make us more and more doers of your word, bringing our lives in line with your word so that we can be blessed and you can look on us with favor. And that's our prayer here today in Jesus' name. Amen.